Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today, I'm speaking with the documentary filmmaker Paul Markell about his doc, The Don Sayer. I'd built over 20 shelters, mostly for other people, before I started to build the art, too. And this shelter is designed to withstand a nuclear blast, a nuclear weapon, a mile and a half outside the crater. I am, so far as I know, the only place you can come that somebody actually has a plan to reconstruct society after a nuclear war. The Don Sayre is a portrait of Bruce Beach, a man mostly known for building the world's largest nuclear fallout shelter located in Hornings Mills, Ontario, just two hours north of Toronto. Arc 2, as it's called, is a refuge, a place where the survivors of nuclear war could go and rebuild civilization. It was completed in 1985 and was state-of-the-art at the time, but these days it's in dire need of repair. So when visitors from around the world want a tour of the Ark, Bruce asks them to put in four hours of work. And now I, since I say to him four hours work, that eliminates, oh, I'd say 80% of the people right there. So out of the thousands, and there have been thousands that have come here to visit and see it, you know, we've only got like 40 who really still ever come to help. While Bruce is known for the Ark, he's also been involved in a number of other projects, including inventing a laptop that predated the IBM 5100. While all of these projects seem doomed to failure, Bruce has a different perspective on his legacy. You know, he thinks that things work out the way they're supposed to, and if that means he hasn't become a billionaire as, as a result, well, that's the path that was meant for him. The documentary is a meditation on the ideas of success and failure, and Bruce's perspective on those is what kept Paul coming back over the eight years he spent producing the documentary. I spoke with Paul about meeting Bruce Beach, why he built a nuclear bomb shelter, and what he thinks about our current quarantine situation. Stay with us. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining me today, and uh, congrats on the doc. I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, thanks. And uh, I guess my first question is kind of an obvious one, but how did you meet Bruce Beach? Uh, I actually, it, there's, it's kind of a two-part story. I initially heard about him. Uh, I did a doc lab at Hot Docs in 2008 or 2009, and there was a Finnish guy there, Sepp who was doing uh, an, an experimental project. He was essentially trying to do a, a survivor type of reality show with, I think it was 20 people locked inside of a bomb shelter for a month. <laughs> and uh, he described the bomb shelter, and it was like 42 school buses buried under 14 feet of earth and concrete and all this stuff, and it's like 10,000 square feet, labyrinthine layout, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. Where is this? And he said, it's actually just two hours north of Toronto. And I was like, that's unbelievable. I was, two years later, I get hired by the CBC to uh, 
to DP a, an ill-fated pilot for the Doc Channel on Preppers, and as it turns out, Bruce is one of the characters. And so we went out. I went out there with the, the entire production team, and uh, unfortunately for that program, Bruce and the producer of the show did not get along at all. And Bruce, being a bit of a control freak, pretty much wouldn't play ball with the way they wanted to do things. So it didn't play out as planned. But as an aside, Bruce and I totally hit it off like a house on fire and uh, spoke the same language. You know, I was already well versed in conspiracy theories going back to like the early 90s. And so it had been, you know, for me, a bit of a, of a hobby. So I knew Bruce's language. And I said to him, you'd be cool if I came back in a year from now or so and started filming a project of my own. And Bruce loves, he loves the attention from the media. So he's, he never says no to anyone who wants to come visit with a camera. And he said, sure. And then a year later, <laughs> it was a year later, it was December 21st, 2012, the day before the world or the day the world was supposed to end, according to the Mayan calendar. And uh, Bruce was not a 2012-er, but Bruce, being considered an expert on the end of the world, was fielding phone calls from reporters all over the world. And I showed up and started filming. And the, the way I, had, I did it as I got to know Bruce, first time I think I stayed at a nearby B Airbnb, then after that, I just started living with him and Gene for weeks at a time. And, you know, in exchange for filming, I was happy to clean the house, do dishes, cook for them, take Gemma for walks and and sit around and talk with Bruce about everything and anything. And we would film some of it, some of it we wouldn't, some of it we would just debate. Over seven, eight years of doing that, I, you know, it's hard to say I became anything less than part of the family because I, I do now know everyone in their family and, you know, it's, I'm the one who gets the phone call if, you know, they can't take Bruce or Gene to the hospital or, or to the doctor or for things like that. So it has become like a second family to me. Yeah, you're kind of friends with them. Really close. Yeah. I mean, in, Bruce and I just had a Zoom the other day and we'd talk either on the phone or on Zoom usually once a month now that I'm out west but when I was in Toronto I would go up sometimes I'd go up to shoot some pickup shots of stuff that I would need sometimes I'd just go up to to hang out and you know see how they're doing and just check in Where, where's he from originally Kansas he's he's an American he um, he grew up in Kansas and uh, ended up uh, in the Air Force before he was even 18, I think he got his parents to lie so that he could join the Air Force. And um, he became an air traffic controller, uh, ended up in Thule, Greenland during the height of the Cold War. And then he started a number of small businesses, and one of which was building personal bomb shelters for people. And this was based out of Utah at the time. And it was called the American Shelter Company. And according to Bruce, he made around 20 shelters for people, which according to him, made him the most prolific private shelter building company in the United States. And then- uh, Is he religious? 
He's Baha'i. Yeah, him and his wife, Jean, are Baha'i. In fact, they met um, at the steps of the Baha'i Temple in Wilmette, Illinois. I would say Jean is more of a traditional Baha'i, whereas Bruce is more of a, a Bruce Beach Baha'i, which, <laughs> like all things Bruce, he, he puts his own spin on things. So what's motivating his desire, I guess, to build bomb shelters? Well, as a result of being growing up in, in you know post World War II, I mean he he remembers the bomb being dropped on Hiroshima as a little boy, and he grew up in that Cold War climate where you know people lived with that daily reality of the world possibly ending, and then when he spent you know all of his time in the Air Force and saw firsthand you know how serious things were. I think he just, that hardened his, his belief that, you know, that mutual agreed destruction was inevitable and that people were incapable of, of preventing it from happening now that the genie had been let out of the bottle. So I think for him, gravitating towards building shelters was just kind of the natural path one who's obsessed with these things would go on. And, you know, he managed initially to turn it into in more of a capitalistic vein, uh, a way to turn his passion into a living. And then I think it became more of a spiritual thing over time. And he kind of, it, it, it ended up dovetailing into his larger paradigm of reconstructing society and the bomb shelter aspect of it just being one part of that paradigm. You know, the necessity of their needing to be a shelter to protect people from, you know, fallouts and bomb blasts in the nuclear winter. But once the war is over for these same people to emerge from these shelters to reconstruct society from the ashes of the old. Well, my worry is the world's going to have a fire called the nuclear holocaust. And that doesn't worry me. I mean, that's the, going to happen for the world. But I'm, I'm trying to help people get prepared to recover from that. Well, if you were describing Arc 2, and that's what it's called, Arc 2, to someone, how would you describe it? Uh, at the time it was built, it, it would have been a marvel, you know? I mean, it was privately built. It was the world's largest privately built bomb shelter. Uh, it was made from 42 school buses that had been gutted and um, refashioned to be rooms, each, each you know, shell of a bus was one room and they put the 42 together in a way that it created a 10,000 square foot uh, space that you know housed, houses redundant diesel generators bunk beds to sleep up to 350 people you know a library a daycare a, a communications center a deep well water supply at the time it was built it would have been unbelievable i mean it unbelievably impressive and at the time, cutting edge. Uh, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately for, for civilization, the bombs never fell. And uh, the shelter has fallen into disrepair. It's also built near a, a waterfall, also on Bruce's land. And there's a lot of groundwater. So as a result of the seepage, the floors have rotted. Um, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. They've managed to, Bruce and his followers have managed to maintain it as best they can, but it's a losing battle. So if you were to go in there today, 
you'd kind of think like, oh God, this would be a great setting for a horror film. You know, it's <laughs> it's kind of terrifying in some ways. Some people won't even go in. Like Bruce's wife, Jean, doesn't like going in. And there's a number of people from the community too who know Bruce or friends with Bruce but don't want to set foot in the shelter because they're afraid of confined spaces in the dark, etc. So it, it can be a bit terrifying. Well, it, it, well if someone was to visit... Uh, the art, because I'm sure he gets visitors uh, from all over the place. Uh, what would be, what would they have to do to, I guess, visit well, the arc? Well, the prerequisite that he gets people to agree to before showing up is four hours of what he calls sweat equity, and what it means is you show up and you put in four hours of volunteer work, which usually is like you know gathering firewood or doing repairs, you know, or or tending to the the, the grounds where the arc has been built there's no shortage of things to do around bruce's place and you know i'm a living living proof of that myself i mean I, every time i go up there i'm <laughs> when i'm not filming i'm i'm always busy doing something else so bruce always has chores and a lot of times it's just changing light bulbs or doing things like that but firewood is the big one up at bruce's simply because they they live off of uh firewood you know they that's how they heat their home so in the winter time firewood is the difference between life or death. Hmm. Well, he he's been involved in a, a few other projects, and I want to go through some of them because uh, you mentioned them and you feature them in the film. And one of them was the Light Writer. Yeah, what was that? It was the world's first laptop computer, and Bruce had a working prototype ready for market, built and operational in, in around 1974. The Light Rider was a portable computer terminal. And at that time, a portable computer weighed 89 pounds. And when we finished development of ours, it weighed 17 and a half. It, it, it was kind of unbelievable for the time. And, and Xerox, he'd, he'd worked with Xerox, uh, and they were going to purchase it and help bring it to market. He worked with Bell Labs on the screen. And... Uh, it would have been the world's first portable computer. And at the time, the next closest computer, portable computer, was what IBM had been working on. I think it was called the 5100, and it weighed 57 and a half pounds. But for those of us familiar with the finer workings of capitalism, the IBM basically pressured Xerox to back out, and Bruce being you know, a small business was incapable of going head to head with IBM. And, you know, if you were to go on Wikipedia, there would be no mention whatsoever of the Light Rider, but the IBM 5100 is credited as being the first portable computer ever built. He was a little ahead of his time, wasn't he? Way ahead of his time. So much so that people think he's nuts. You know, it's, 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 it's almost that whole, you kind of have to be, of the time in terms of your thinking, otherwise people will just look at you like you're nuts. Because half the time people look at Bruce like he's nuts because they don't understand what he's talking about. But what he's typically talking about is stuff that now, looking back, we can say, wow, he was ahead of his time, as opposed to, wow, he's a crazy, he's a nut. But unfortunately, in Bruce's case, people still look at him and think, he's crazy, he's nuts. Well, one, one, I'll ask you just about the last, uh, I guess, project that's sort of featured in, in the doc, the Universal Auxiliary Language. Yeah. Uh, what was that one about? 
Well, not not unlike Esperanto, it's a universal a universal auxiliary language, which ultimately is a language that is, in principle, by design, a language that everyone in the world could speak, so that everyone in the world could communicate. And the idea behind it is that if we could all speak the same language, we could all communicate, and if we can all communicate and understand one another, we could actually attain world peace. So Bruce is ultimately someone who, <laughs> talk about, you know, being ambitious, he wants world peace and he thinks that he has the plan that can help bring about world peace. And Angel Time, his universal auxiliary language that he has a blueprint for, is the language that he he truly believes is the his point in life, which is why he was put here on Earth. This is the work he was put here to do. And he has spent his whole life working on this. And everything everything else he's done has always tied into funding the universal auxiliary language. These were all business schemes that he had to generate money to help pay for the Universal Language Institute, which he had a, an, a, um, an architectural firm in Toronto build a model for it. And, you know, he has blueprints, mock-ups, everything to have this project built. In the early 80s, it would have cost over $100 million to do. And it never, it never happened. Bruce is, again, like I said, been a victim of circumstance. And he's never been able to generate the kind of money from his projects. So it's another one of his dreams that has fallen short and I keep coming back to that theme in the film about Bruce in the eyes of most people is considered a failure but when your goal is to create world peace and you haven't achieved it yet are you a failure or someone who's just dreaming big yeah I kind of wondered if uh, if he had any regrets or remorse about uh, these projects and just the fact that they, they, were never, they were never able to really catch on, I guess. You know, that's the thing about Bruce that kept me going back for eight years of filming, is that, you know, like most of us, if we don't achieve our goals, we feel we failed, or, you know, we've, we've fallen short, or, whereas that doesn't, it's almost like Bruce can't even comprehend that. You know, he thinks that things work out the way they're supposed to and if that means he hasn't become a billionaire as, as a result well that's the path that was meant for him and he's not going to give up that's for damn sure I mean he's he's in his late 80s now and he still works 15 hours a day on these very projects you know I mean the universal auxiliary language is still something that he is working on every single day so he's inspiring in the, for to someone like me who judges success in the way most of us have been conditioned to judge success, which is through, you know, oh, how many people saw your film? How much money did you make? How many people know who you are? That type of thing. Bruce doesn't care. You know, sure, he wants the word to get out. Sure, he would like more attention than he's getting and more help. But his motive for that is just to help realize his dream, not basically rate himself. I mean, for him, he's obsessed with his goals, and his goals are unlikely to be realized in his lifetime. 
I guess for him, it's, it's, he has an insatiable appetite for working towards realizing those goals that will never be quenched. And he's a really inspiring guy to be around as a result because it doesn't matter. I mean, he's been screwed over by so many people so many times and has had failures so epic that most of us will never imag- could never imagine what it was like to you know, lose a child or lose $50 million or have everything taken away from you or to have the government try and take everything away from you to spend so much time and resources fighting for what you believe in in the courts and I mean there's so many stories that I couldn't even tell in the film because there's only so much time and this is Bruce. I wasn't going to mention his his son his child passing away because I, I I thought that was something that uh was probably it came as a surprise to me and I I think uh it kind of motivates him in a way Can, actually maybe since you brought it up do you want to do you want to just tell that story sure I mean Bruce Bruce's youngest son Baji um, was killed in a tobogganing accident in 1979 and um, you know at the time it happened it you know in Bruce's own words it took the wind right out of his sails and he didn't think he'd ever be able to go on and you know I my pop psychology analysis of it I thought oh maybe this was the seed you know maybe this was the um, the motivation for everything that he did after 1979 and I asked him that and it was like he actually had to do the math in his head to realize that oh I guess it was about six months after Baji had passed that I broke ground on building the ark and I don't think in his mind he thinks there's a connection but I certainly do you know I mean for me I think Bruce coped with the loss of his son through burying himself in his work and in my opinion you know he was incapable of saving the life of his of his youngest son so instead he chose to save the world and you know I mean it certainly motivated him and it's a lot of good has certainly come out of it and I, I think that in a way it's it's it is I mean for me it's heartbreaking you know especially now being a father I can't imagine how devastating the loss of your child would be and but in true Bruce Beach fashion he turned that negative into a lot of good well do you see his he has a grandson and uh, do you see him or anyone else meet perhaps taking on this legacy uh, when he passes I think so yeah I, I, I mean Evan Bruce's grandson is He's a great kid. I mean, I guess he's not really a kid anymore. He was when I started filming, but now he's, he's a young man in his early 20s. And, you know, Evan's a hard worker, and he, he grew up in the Ark. He loves the Ark. Uh, he doesn't share the same paradigm that his grandfather does. And, you know, Bruce's criticism is that, you know, Evan isn't spiritual in the same way that Bruce is, and Evan isn't necessarily going to forward the agenda of the universal auxiliary language but the fact is Evan wants to be the custodian to the ark and you know he does have plans on how to fix it up and you know make it operational Evan doesn't believe in his lifetime he's going to see you know the collapse of society but he does agree with his grandpa that someday down the road that is likely and that the bomb shelter could be very helpful to, you know, a couple hundred people when the time does come. So, yeah, Evan is committed to that, and 
I'm not necessarily sure if Bruce is 100% on board with it, simply because Bruce wants Bruce wants a clone of himself to take over, <laughs> and that's never going to happen. So he's kind of a one of a kind. That's just it. I mean, there's only one Bruce Beach in the world, and you know that's why I made this film is because I wanted to tell the story of who this man really is, not who the guy is that's been you know, maligned by the press as being this crazy old man with a bomb shelter, you know, I mean, he's, he may be eccentric, but uh, it's not because he's crazy, you know. It, but he's brilliant. He's brilliant. I mean, that's the thing that I, I came away with. I mean, he's, he's obviously a, has a brilliant mind, but, um, you know, and he's certainly, uh, I guess, yeah, one could look at his, uh, his, these projects as somewhat eccentric, but I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of how genius works, right? Absolutely. And, you know, John Kennedy, one of the, um, he was a doctor at the um, University of Toronto, he, he was a PhD in perception, and he said, you know, he's from the UK, and he said, you know, where I come from, people like Bruce are considered eccentrics. We don't dismiss them as crazy, we celebrate them, because these are the people that bring ideas to the table that no one else thought about, and ultimately, societies advance, not because of groupthink or what everyone can agree on. It's when someone comes up with an idea that no one's thought about and that idea revolutionizes the world. Today we measure things. I mean, unless you've made the fortune of Bill Gates or somebody like that, you're not considered a success. So many things in my life that I do are, are, are just counterintuitive and sometimes really stupid. And the thing that's prevented the success of many of my uh, goals is that they are ahead of their time. You know, the day may come when society realizes or has, or has to embrace some of Bruce's ideas simply because our backs are to the wall when it comes to survival. And, you know, that interesting times, I mean, that we're in right now, it's almost... Uh, I was going to ask, have you had any conversations with him about COVID-19? Many, 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 yeah. And he, you know, on one hand, I'm like, my timing's either exceptionally good or exceptionally bad because I released a film at the same time that all the movie theaters and all the film festivals that would show it can no longer show it. <laughs> and I don't... And Bruce is a firm believer and always an optimist. And he says, no, he goes, your timing is perfect. He goes, this happened for a reason. And in the end, it's because of the attention and the change in the world that's happening right now that people will be ready to hear this for the first time. And maybe he's got a point, you know, I sure hope so, because, you know, again, I'm still stuck in the paradigm of comparing success to others and comparing myself to others and, and my film, you know, I want people to see this film for more reasons than one. But one of the reasons is I got a mortgage now. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I got a, I got a little girl that needs to go to university someday, and and you know I have to be pragmatic. At the same time, you know, I do want the message out that Bruce Beach was not nuts. That Bruce Beach is not just some guy who built a bomb shelter. That there's so much more to this man. That and and so much that we could learn from as individuals, each and every one of us, because there's a lot of there's a lot of inspirational aspects to Bruce's personality, and I, I hope those come through in the film. 
Well, I do hope you get a theatrical release uh, very soon, and I want to thank you so much, Paul, for joining me today on Ondocs. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's the podcast. Keep your eyes out for the Don Sarah when it hits the documentary screening circuit. If you like what you heard, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. You can write to us at ondocs.tvo.org, and you can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. Remember to check out past episodes of On Docs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. This podcast is produced by Matthew Amara and me. Our production support coordinators are Jonathan Hollowell and Nikki Ashworth. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor. And our executive producer for digital is Kathy Vay. We'll catch you at the next screening.